MediaMind, a new podcast from the TRT World Research Center, unpacks some of the most popular yet misunderstood news events of the month, examining them and connecting them to the defining political, social, and intellectual order of the 21st century. In each episode, academics, journalists, activists, and opinion leaders will unravel political narratives surrounding issues ranging from global politics and media controversies to criminal justice and corporate crime. Hello, everyone. It's my pleasure today to welcome Dr. Fahid Qurashi with us today in Media Mind podcast. Dr. Fahid is a lecturer in criminology at the University of Salford and the research director at the IAN Institute. He lectures and conducts research in the areas of Islamophobia, racism, crime, counterterrorism, political Islam, you name it. Dr. Fahid, it's a pleasure having you with us today. Thank you very much for having me. Uh, likewise, a pleasure um, being on your podcast. That's awesome. Well, let's go right to it. And can you tell us a little bit about yourself? Yeah, so as you said, I'm a lecturer in criminology at the University of Salford. I've been in academia for a number of years now. My background is in sociology and criminology. So I have a PhD in sociology. And then before that, I studied in criminology. I've taught at a range of different institutions. And as you said, I research in the areas of Islamophobia, political Islam, radicalization, uh, things of that nature. So those kinds of subjects. Brilliant. May I ask, what brought you to criminology? Were you attracted by crime yeah. novels and what? Yeah, exactly. I mean, just from you know, from a very young age, I was always fascinated by crime. When I was young, I used to watch crime programs, policing programs, and just the sort of the cracking cases, finding evidence, finding leads. This is the sort of thing, you know, as a young mind, you find it fascinating, you know, looking for clues and trying to join them together. So that was really, you know, from a very young age, watching crime programs, films, reading crime books, that was really the fascinating. And, it, you know, for a lot of criminology students, even today, that's still the case. We have like you know, Netflix and all these different platforms now. And the majority of the leading programs on these shows are crime related. So it's still a big area of uh, interest for a lot of students, even today. Well, that's brilliant. Well, today we have a nut case to crack. You know? Yeah, we have. I mean, we want to discuss today about the Trojan horse affair in the UK. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about it, the background? I'm sure a lot of our audiences don't know about it. So can you tell us? Yeah, sure. So it's it's a really interesting case and it's quite a sordid affair as well. So it starts in 2014 in the UK. And what happens is that there's an allegation of a Muslim conspiracy to Islamize British schools that was supposedly uncovered by some people at these local schools in Birmingham in the UK. So at the heart of this affair is an anonymous letter that was found by some people, other other people working in, in, in those schools, and it alleged a secret plot that was codenamed Operation Trojan Horse to be orchestrated by Muslim professional school teachers and others to try to take over Birmingham schools and Islamize them. So this letter is quite interesting, right? It appears to be a correspondence between two Muslim conspirators and they're sort of outlining a strategy or a plan of how uh, Muslim school teachers and governors can take over these schools. And it was allegedly found by an anonymous source in an office. Some page, I think four pages of it were photocopied and then sent to the local authority. And there was also a cover letter attached 
attached to that, which threatened to leak this to the national press if the contents you know, of this alleged plot weren't investigated within a week. Now, what's interesting is that the letter was widely considered to be fraudulent, even at the time that it was written. This is not something that with hindsight, we've sort of realized it was fraudulent. Even at the time, people were calling this a fraudulent letter. Um, so and the so chief, my understanding, I, there were, yeah. my understanding, there were some names about yeah. certain officials that were not yes. even there, you know, at that time, like some of them were, were retired like 20 years before the facts. I mean, yeah, yeah, come? exactly. I mean, there were a number of people named in this letter. One of them, I think the chief protagonist in the letter is quite clearly a person called Tahir Alam. And he himself in the podcast says that he was quite quickly able to identify who he believed to be the likely author of the letter. So there was already some politics going on, you know, in the schools, amongst the governors, amongst the professionals. And he sort of seen this letter as part of this broader play that was going on in the background. In terms of like the other people that were involved in this, this is this is not something that is new. So this, I, you know, one of the ways I think about this is the racialized whole. Okay. And as you said, in the letter, there were other people that were named who, who alleged that they were also victims of this sort of plot from decades before, when actually it wasn't the case. They left or they were pushed out or, you know, whatever kind of language you want to use because of a whole range of other reasons, whether that be financial irregularities, whether that be, you know, the truth and lies and job applications and CVs and things like this and misconduct and those sorts of allegations, mismanagement. These are the sorts of allegations that surrounded their exit from their posts, but they tried to retrospectively uh, include it as part of this Trojan Force affair plot. Well, I understand that this was like around 2013, 2014. And yeah. now we, we know there is this letter of dubious nature but what was the impact what did it create what's the wider implication of this letter can you tell us a little bit more about what happened yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I mean, so the political significance of this letter was quite serious. The letter caused a lot of damage in Muslim communities. And part of the reason for that was that it was is because it was successfully weaponized by the government and also by complicity of media organizations. So in terms of the, you know, just to think about the impact of the letter, the letter impacted students at that school, for example, whose qualifications and education levels were being questioned. Some of the students reported that there was a stigma attached to their uh, attendance at that school. So they were having to remove names from CVs and things like this because they were finding it hard to get work afterwards. The teachers, for example, some of the teachers and the governors that were implicated lost jobs, lost livelihoods, you know, had serious personal impacts and financial implications um, for them as well. The same with the governors. A lot of these people had to get lawyers and had to go through very difficult legal proceedings, you know, which of course has a serious impact on them. It also had a significant impact on the Muslim community, as I said, because the letter was weaponized by the government. And the reason for this is that in 2014, the UK government wanted to introduce something called the Counterterrorism and Security Act. And one of the key parts of that legislation was that it wanted to make something that it's called the prevent strategy in the UK, which is part of the UK counterterrorism strategy. It's one element of that. And it wanted to make that a legal duty. Up to 2014, public institutions were engaging with that strategy on a voluntary basis. Um, the government obviously wasn't happy with the level of engagement or perhaps wanted further, deeper engagement with the strategy. So it, it made it a legal duty in the 2014 legislation. And, you know, the Trojan Horse Affair provided a very easy rationalization for that legal duty, particularly in the education sector, where there was a lot of concern about the the impact that this is going to have, the impact of counterterrorism and security, surveillance, monitoring, referrals on the quality of education that students will be receiving. But this Trojan Horse Affair, because it took place in schools, because there were accusations that Muslims were secretly trying to take over schools and, and impact the education system,
system. It provided a very easy rationale for this strategy. And a year after the Trojan horse affair in 2015, the government also introduced what's, what it called the counter-extremism strategy. And as a result of that, also created something called the Extremism Analysis Unit at the Home Office. And the, the, the point of this was to monitor and compile blacklists of extremists and other individuals who hadn't necessarily broken the law, but were considered to be beyond the pale for public engagement and not necessarily considered appropriate people. So all of these powers were introduced to try to target these individuals and organizations. And it also, you know, this legislation and these strategies of counter-extremism introduced other powers, for example, to label individuals and groups as extremists and to ban them from the public space, to restrict their access, for example, in on campuses, in local community centers and things like this. So I think the key thing to, to note out of all of this is that the overarching aim of, of the legislation and the strategy that I just mentioned was to set in motion what Home Office at the time called the counter-entryism operation. You know, this idea that Muslims are secretly trying to enter these public institutions and try to infiltrate them and so on. The government wanted to introduce a counter-entryism operation across the public to try to hunt down Muslims that might be considered dangerous and planning other Trojan horse-style operations. So the key thing is that the government used a sense of suspicion about Muslims that it cultivated and that emerged from the Trojan horse affair, and it extended it across the nation by legalizing mass referrals, surveillance, and things like this. And the damage of that continues to be felt even today. Well, I have no doubt that's really, really appalling to see the level of kind yeah. of trying to curtail civil liberties of the Muslims and Muslim communities and putting this stigma on education and on pupils and, and students. What really is more shocking is the fact that this is based on hoax. And my understanding, please correct me if I'm wrong, there were a series of lawsuits, but nothing was ever proven against anybody. Is that, is that fair to say? Yeah, I mean, there were some people who were accused of a whole range of different things. Some of them, in some cases, they weren't proven, but then sort of connected offenses to do with homophobia and things like this because of like leaks or WhatsApp messages and things like this were proven. But in terms of the actual... But this allegation yes, exactly. to spread Islam and attack other forms of education in, in the UK and impose a certain style of Islam yeah. to others. I mean, this is just bollocks. Absolutely. There's no, yeah. there's no proof. Absolutely. And, and the thing is, what's interesting is that that was a finding that emerged out of the two key government initiated reports. So there were two official investigations into this alleged hoax, alleged affair, sorry. The first one was by a person called Peter Clark and the second one was by a person called Ian Kershaw, okay? The Clark report found no evidence of terrorism, radicalization, or violent extremism in the schools, and also that there was no problem of governance more generally in the school, which was another accusation that was being leveled at the Muslim professionals in the school. And then similarly, even with the Kershaw report, they also found that there was no sort of Muslim conspiracy to promote an anti-British Western agenda, radicalization in the schools and things like this, or that there was a coordinated plan by Muslim professionals to take over these schools that were predominantly Muslim. And what's also interesting is that these were findings that were also mirrored by the Education Select Committee report. So the official investigations later on, you know, didn't find evidence and they concluded that, you know, the accusations of a concerted plan to Islamize these schools wasn't necessarily an accurate claim that was being made at the time, but the damage had already been done, you know, at, yes, at the, by that point. Absolutely. So uh, I understand the New York Times and Serial created a podcast called The Trojan Horse Affair. What is the focus of this podcast? 
Yeah, it's actually quite interesting. The key thing here and the key focus of the podcast is the author of the letter, which seems quite strange when you consider that there's this letter that had such a significant impact that it was used, it was weaponized, it was used as the key piece of evidence for the need for new legislation and strategies and so on, that we need to think about who the author of the letter was. We need to have that conversation. The author of the letter, as I said before, was written anonymously. The author of the letter was never identified. The official investigations that I named previously, the Kershaw investigation and the Clark investigation, both of them didn't concern themselves with who wrote the letter, which for me is a pretty big problem. They essentially proceeded on the basis that the allegations in the letter were true and they and they proceeded on that basis. So what the Trojan Horse Affair tries to do is ask a very simple question. Who wrote the letter? Who was the author of this letter? And they travel far and wide to try to uncover the author. They travel all across the world, all the way to Australia to try to understand who wrote it and why essentially they wrote it. Now, of course, they, you know, because they were in conversation with some of the key protagonists, people like Tahir Alam and others, who already had a good sense of who the author of the letter might be, the journalists had a good sense that, the first of all, that the letter was likely to be fraudulent. And then also following leads to try to understand the author of the letter might is something that we might be able to uncover. And, you know, that sort of gives the podcast almost like a thriller-like character where they're chasing down leads and they're speaking to people clandestinely and so on. But they speak to a range of people. They speak to teachers that were implicated in the Trojan Horse Affair, governors, fellow journalists and politicians. And that's really the focus of the of the podcast. Who wrote the letter? And they do name somebody in, in the podcast who they believe is the author. And that sort of mirrors the name that others also think is the likely author of the letter, but nothing has been proven, of course. Interesting. But there is a sense in my mind, we know how the media sometimes are diligent, how many in investigative reporters exist in the UK. Why was the media performance so appalling in this case? And why and how were media organizations in the UK complicit in that? I mean, it's, it's a really important question. I think that, first of all, I think that to say that they were poor in just in this case, I don't think. I think that, you know, when it comes to issues of racism and Islamophobia, media organizations have been complicit for quite some time. They promote and they amplify societal racism, institutional racism. And in this case, there were numerous media organizations, the mainstream media, you would call them, that were complicit. And I think they were complicit in two ways. Firstly, they were complicit because they, in many cases, many outlets promoted the story of the plot that was alleged in this letter as if it were real. So they basically took the government line to say, we're going to proceed on the basis that this is a, a real letter that alleges a real plot. And media organizations did that too. So the consequence of that was that there wasn't much fact-checking of the allegations in many outlets, the allegations contained in the letter, for example. So for example, example, I think one of the first papers that broke the story in the UK was The Times. And there was very little fact-checking in the story. You know, you mentioned earlier on about some of the names in the letter that were included as part of being as part of the plot, people like Nashaba Hussein, for example. But the, the truth of that is that she left her post 20 years earlier. So some simple fact-checking by uh, media organizations would have, would have led to a more thorough reporting on this issue. So that's the first thing. You know, media organizations promoted the story as if it were real. The second thing I think is that there were key areas of further investigation that would have unpicked the official narrative of the Trojan horse affair that were deliberately ignored whilst evidence of the influence of an Islamic ethos at the schools was amplified. And that was important because it was necessary to do that to protect 
everything that had been ventured on this letter. As I said before, you know, there was a piece of legislation and a kind of extremism strategy that had been ventured on this hoax. And it was necessary, therefore, to protect the legitimacy of the letter, to protect the legitimacy of the legislation and all of the politicians who stake their reputations on this being um, true. You know, it's a, it's a really important, it's a really interesting question because when I listened to the podcast, the first question I had was, how is this even possible that a letter that's widely considered fraudulent could not only lead to a witch hunt uh, and again, Muslims, but also ferment and national hysteria, you know, in the press about about Muslims. And that is what happened. You know, politicians and media organizations fermented a hysteria about the Muslims in the UK. And I think also here, you know, so I said part of the first problem is that they reported the story as if it were true and they took the government line. But also I think part of the reason is also that there is this ideological alignment between the mainstream media uh, and the state in the UK. And, you know, the BBC, for example, has been widely accused of operating as a propaganda arm of state. Part of this, I think, is, is about keeping good relations with governments. Uh, and different departments so that they can ease access and develop relationships with ministers and other politicians to help break stories. But I also think, for example, last week, one of the creators of a show in the UK called The Thick of It, which looks at the media relationship between politicians and media organizations, Armando Iannucci, he gave an interview and he said that he talked about the way in which these relationships between the media and the government result in the death of truth and they lead to a horrific politics. And I think that this is a, an example of that, where you have these close relationships between the media and politicians. But the consequences of that are something that we don't necessarily think about. It impacts accurate reporting, it impacts truth. And I also think in the UK, this, this is not a podcast that was produced. It's very telling for me that this was a, it took a pair of international journalists based at the New York Times, rather than a British media outlet where this whole affair happened to produce this podcast of this detail to ask these sorts of critical questions of the Trojan horse affair narrative, to bother itself with uncovering the author, and also to ponder the long-term impacts of the Trojan horse affair. And I think that rather than taking that approach, the approach of the British mainstream media after the podcast was quite defensive, you know. So even after the, the podcast came out, the, some of the responses of the British press were terrible. For example, there was a piece in The Guardian, I remember at the time, that claimed that the podcast got the story wrong, and there was a piece in the Times at the time, which attacked the professionalism, the integrity, the impartiality of the journalists and so on. So the British press mainstream media were complicit in numerous ways. And I think that there's a number of different reasons for that that go beyond just the Trojan horse affair. And I think it's a bigger and a broader and a wider problem that we have this you know, relationship between the press and the state. Well, then it's very important to discuss the political significance of the affair because, I mean, the media, since there is such entanglement with like the government and some leading figures in the Tories. So what's, in your view, political significance and what are some of the causes and effects? As I said before, of course, the, the political significance of this is that it was the letter was weaponized successfully as a piece of evidence for new legislation and counter-extremism strategies. And I think that what it did was it took the sense of suspicion about Muslims that emerged from this, this idea that Muslims are operating in clandestine ways, and it spread that across the nation. It legalized surveillance and really harmed the relations between Muslim communities, British society and public institutions. The weaponization of the letter was necessary, as I said before, to for the legitimacy of these new kind of terrorism powers. And it was because it was the key piece of evidence. But also, I think that there was a strategic ignorance that was cultivated around the letter to ignore key pieces of evidence that would question the official narrative and also therefore question the truth of the affair 
and then also the legitimacy of the legislations and the strategies that came afterwards. So the political significance has been quite deep for Muslim communities, and it's something that is even being felt to this day. Some of the most heartbreaking pieces of information, stories that emerged after the podcast was the stories of the teachers that had been implicated, and how even today, almost 10 years later, they're still living with the consequences of this. And also how Muslims in leadership positions in education in other schools across the country have also been drawn into this in some like a a net and being dragged into this. So the, the ramifications of this have been quite significant. The political significance, as I said, has been quite significant. And, the, you know, the impact of those legislations on Muslims has been significant as well. So it's not just the Trojan horse affair, but it's what that then produced in the legislation and the strategies, which have then had an effect. So the prevent strategy, for example, has resulted in thousands of young Muslim school children being referred to the channel program, investigated or potentially being radicalized and and. On. And that's had a serious impact on Muslim education, issues of trust and confidence, even in the health sector, for example, that health professionals are also have a legal responsibility now with the prevent strategy. So the consequences of this are not just with this the Trojan horse affair, they've kind of spread into other sectors and caused wide ranging damage to Muslim communities. And if I may, just one notion as an academic, maybe you could clarify. I mean, this notion of racialized hoax, what can you tell us about it? What other parallels in history or other cases are similar? I mean, I think that this is a case of a racialized hoax. Racialized hoaxes are something that have existed since time immemorial. And they've been used to uphold white supremacy and achieving uh, other goals. The thing about racialized hoaxes is that it's not just the concern with the individual. So, for example, in the Trojan Horse Affair, the key protagonist is Tahir Alam. But with the racialized hoax, it's not just about Tahir Alam. It's about sending, they're concocted to send political messages and target whole minority communities rather than just that individual concern. You know, even when they've been exposed, as they have done in this case, the image of the black criminal or the Muslim terrorist, they still linger and they're very difficult to disprove for the victim and they become prominent because they tap into widely held racist and islamic phobic views about minorities about muslims they reflect the social climate and they're also you know very play a very important role in reinforcing islamophobia for every generation they rely on caricatured images and they become prominent as i said because they tap into long-held fears so this is something that has existed for quite some time and it's also something you know internationally we can see as well in the us for example black men were regularly accused of being sexually inappropriate or raping white women and that was a key basis for lynching of black men there's a very famous novel called to kill a mockingbird which i'm sure you've heard of and that's the key story at the heart of that that book that novel is this inappropriate allegedly inappropriate relationship between a black man and a white woman where he's accused of raping her but actually it was socially inappropriate because there was a consensual relationship going on there but it was reframed in those ways and also the case of emmett teal in the u.s which is there's a movie that's just been released this year where he was accused of being sexually inappropriate to a white woman and there was lynched on the basis of that but later on that was shown to be not true the woman at the heart of this re- later recanted her story and said that actually the allegations that she made about Emmett Teal weren't true so this is something that has existed and you know even in the UK as, as we, we talked briefly before there are other people in Birmingham in schools people like Nashaba Hussein Bawant Baines and Papinda Kondo who were in leadership positions that used Islamophobic ideas about 
Muslims, that they're extremists, that they don't want women in education, that they don't believe in the British way of life, that women shouldn't work, and so on, that were then used, these people used those sorts of claims and allegations about Muslims to talk about an alleged plot, get rid of them from their positions, when in fact the reality was very, very different. As I said, they were accused of other things, unprofessional conduct in a range of different areas, but they tried to incorporate their cases as part of the broader cases of the Trojan horse affair that were going on. So this is something that has been going on for quite some time. And it's quite worrying that this is something that has happened several times in Birmingham for the previous 20 years as well. Well, just a final question here. In terms of lessons learned, how is the Muslim community digesting all these developments? We have seen miscarriage of justice. We have seen the weaponization of hoaxes and uh, stories that have no, absolutely no basis. We have seen a media bashing. We have seen so many things. What's the sense now? I mean, what are the lessons learned? Some of the key ones. I mean, I think as a result of all of this, there have been people that have been seriously victimized. Muslim community has been very supportive of the people that were caught up in all of this. But I, th I think in terms of lessons learned, there is sense of doing due diligence, making sure that we are we are aware of the details of the case. Social media now has been quite a big player in this, in the way in which information can be shared, networks can be built, uh, networks of support can be built as well. So there have been numerous networks and collaborations between different communities and people coming together to try to expose the truth of the affair and collaborating with journalists and other people in, in academia and, and, and so on. But I think the key thing is the human story in all of this and the way in which the Muslim communities have tried to support those that have been at the part of this. Whether that's sufficient or not, I, I don't really know. But yeah, it's a difficult one. And and also, I think Muslims in this country, as, as in other parts of the world, have been a heavily demonized community. So it's very difficult for marginalized communities to take away a label that's applied to them. Labels stick and, and they apply on the basis of power. So people in positions of power apply labels to those that have less power and they stick because of the power of the person that's applying the label. So it is difficult for Muslim communities to sort of remove those labels but there have been a lot of noise. And I think now that there is an acknowledgement that is slowly, slowly growing that this was a hope and that it caused a lot of damage. I think the other thing here as well is that it damages relations between communities and the mainstream media and with politicians. It damages democracy. And I think that, you know, we see the consequences of that in the way in which there's, you know, the spreading of what's called fake news, the lack of trust and confidence in politics and in the media. And I think that's very damaging for democracy and it creates significant democratic deficits in minority communities where there needs to be trust. We need to have trust. And, and that doesn't seem to be being cultivated very well as a result of these events that happen. So it's very self-defeating in, in many, many ways. Brilliant. Thank you very much for uh, sharing all these insights with us. And just like a final footnote, do you recommend any books on this affair uh, besides, of course, the serial podcast? Yeah, there are a number of authors that have written on this quite extensively. You know, there's people like John Holmwood that have written on this. There's people like Dr. Shamim Mia who's written on this as well. So I, I would recommend checking out their written work on this subject. It's, it's really, really excellent. Well, thanks again for this insights. And you really give us a lot of food for thought on, on, on this session. Thank you very much for highlighting Thank you very much. issues. And looking forward to hosting you again sometime in the future. Inshallah. Thanks again. And Thank you very much. Wishing you all the best. Thank you. Well... That is all for this episode of Media Mind, brought to you by the TRT World Research Center. This podcast was produced by researcher Sabri Ege. I hope you enjoyed listening to this episode. Please subscribe to our channel on iTunes and Spotify. Don't forget to leave us a review and rating. This is Media Mind.
Thank you.